for you to turn to the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews. And I want to read verses 1 through 3. And if you have your Bible open, you can follow along as I read. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels, that is, one sent from heaven without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. Now I'm not a, I wasn't a regular watcher of MASH but many people were. It's probably, it was I think the longest running uh, television show in the history of television. I may be totally wrong, but I'm going to say that. And uh, MASH was, uh, you know, uh, one of the most popular shows it's ever been. But I did watch the final episode. I think there were six people in the United States that didn't watch that final episode. And they had a three-hour special as they kind of wrapped up MASH. Now this thing had been running for eight years. And it gotten really, you know, the plot had not made it that much farther than when it started. But in three hours, they wrapped that thing up and brought it unto, you know, brought it to a conclusion. And so everybody in MASH, you know, had, it was a solution for every character and everybody lived happily ever after. It's kind of what the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews is. It's kind of the wrapping it all up. Now, a person who does not know, has not studied the book of Hebrews, has no right to be critical of the book. Because the criticism of the book of Hebrews is that it is too impersonal and too theological. And that's true, really, to some extent. But to say that is to fail to read chapter 13 because this author in the last chapter just begins to pour in this enormous amount of information that is both personal and practical. The first 12 chapters are theological and impersonal, but the last chapter, he just wraps it all up with this amazing amount, this tremendous amount of practical and personal information. I smile because I read this limerick one time goes like this. There was a young poet in Japan whose poetry no one could span. When told it was so, he replied, yes, I know, but I always try to get in as many words in the last line as I can. Now that's kind of what the author of the book of Hebrews is doing. He's trying to get in all the words he can in the last chapter and wrap it all up with this marvelous practical and personal uh, information. Now, I don't know how many times people have said to me, all you preachers do is tell us what we're doing wrong, you know. You always tell us what we're doing wrong, but nobody tells us what we can do right. Nobody tells us what we should be doing. And so I'm about to do that tonight. I'm going to begin in the 13th chapter, and I want to show you from God's Word what every believer should be doing. Now there are three things that 
I notice in general from chapter 13, three general statements that need to be made. Now I'm gonna give you a clue. Each one of these statements begins the same way it begins prior to the last chapter. So you already got that much. Three general statements about chapter 13 it's, uh, and the book of Hebrews. Number one, prior to the last chapter, the emphasis in Hebrews has been vertical and now it is horizontal. Prior to the last chapter, the emphasis has been on man's relationship in standing with God. And in this last chapter, the emphasis is on man's relationship to man and his standing among his, his, his peers, his neighbor, his, his fellow man. Second, prior to the last chapter, there are lengthy discussions on various subjects and sometimes so lengthy that one subject takes as long as a chapter to, to develop so that there are these lengthy discussions. But in the last chapter, there are these just jabs like a boxer, you know, was, you know, punch, just bang, 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 these sharp jabs. And, 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 and that's the way chapter 13 goes. Third, Prior to the last chapter, there are very few practical warnings and commands. But in this last chapter, I count 12, a dozen practical commands and warnings. I mean, he's telling us this is the way it has to be if you're going to live the Christian life. I'm reminded of a fellow who said that he, he, he took his 12-year-old son on a fishing trip. And he decided it was time to kind of give his son one of these father and son talks. He's going to tell him all about the facts, you know, about life and the facts of life. And he said he spent about four hours just really, you know, just talking, just giving him everything he knew. And he said he came to the end of the four-hour discussion and he looked at his son and he said, now, are there any questions that you have? He said, my son looked at me kind of bewildered. He said, Dad, I think you have answered every question I will ever have about life. Well, chapter 13 just answers every question you may have or not have about life. Now, there are three specifics, and each one of them should end with, a, with an exclamation point. If you're serious about being a Christian, these three specifics. First, let love for the brethren continue. Secondly, show sympathy or compassion towards strangers. And third, remember prisoners. Now, verse 4 has nothing to do, by the way, parenthetically, with verse 3. Verse 4 talks about marriage. Verses 5 and 6 have nothing to do with marriage, or verses 1 through 3. Verse 7 goes with verse 17. Verse 8, out of the clear blue, talks about the immobility of Christ. Verse 9 is a warning against strange teachings. Verses 10 through 14 talk about sacrifice and offerings and how they affect man. And, and you, so you can kind of see how this detached passage, chapter, deals with what we're going to be dealing with as we study this on Sunday night. Just like a boxer, he jabs home truth, command, warning. 
So these specific. As a Christian, number one, let love for the brethren continue. Six words in the English, three words in the Greek. The term for love there, love of the brethren, the word love is, is worthy of note because it's not the normal biblical word. The normal biblical word for love as it relates to the Christian life is the word agape. And it means to seek the highest welfare. It means to work for the highest good for others. And it really is not an emphasis on one's feeling or emotion as it is upon one's will. So that if I love you with agape love, I'm going to be committed to your highest welfare. That's not the word there. It's the word philos. Adelphos comes from that word, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. He said, let love for those in the forever family of God flow freely. And it's a word that really emphasizes warmth and feeling. It's a word that you, 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 you kind of sense that wants to reach out and embrace someone and include them, hug them. It means to look upon someone with an affectionate regard. It means to cherish. And sometimes the word even is used to kiss. So what he's saying here as a bully, as a Christian, that we're to love fellow Christians and that this love should be marked with courtesy and compassion. It's a love of feeling. It's the same word used for Jesus' love for Lazarus when he said how he loved him. And remember that these people are street people who are trying to find anywhere they can find to live. And many of them, I'm sure, have become isolated and disenfranchised and separated. And he's saying that that, that this should mark the people of God, that there is this continuous, not spasmodic, but this free-flowing cherishing of one another. Sure sounds strange, doesn't it? That God's people ought to cherish one another. And that when they see one another, there is this spontaneous desire to embrace. You mean so much. To one another, you see. Someone commenting on this verse said, In denial and decay of their faith, the tendency is to disown Christian fellowship. I want you to understand what he's saying there. Something like that may have happened to you. In the decay of Christian faith, the first symptom of that is the disowning of fellowship. The disowning of fellowship. Now, I know it is true that you can be a good Christian and never come to church. That may be true. But not coming together in fellowship, cherishing one another, may be a symptom of the decay of your faith. It may show up there first. And somehow I think that this cherishing of one another is the barometer of church. Someone told me the other night. He said, he checked his watch one last Sunday is, People were lingering around in this church talking to one another and fellowshipping. It was past 12.30. It was 12.45. No one seemed to care. He said that's the spiritual barometer of a church to see people loving to be with one another and fellowshipping with one another. 
Oh, I know you may have developed a safe way to live and you don't have to worry about being hurt and so you're going to isolate yourself and you may have in the decay of your faith disowned fellowship. But if that is true, you're disobedient to the Christian faith and to the command of God. Second specific, show hospitality to strangers. Now, it's amazing when you look at that in the, in the Greek language, it's the same word used for let brotherly love continue. The word hospitality, show hospitality here, it's the same word. So what he's saying is let love of the brethren, let love of the brethren continue. Let love for strangers not be forgotten. Does that mean somebody I don't know? Yes. We see this command has a bigger circumference than my backyard and has a bigger circumference than my church. Someone was talking to me this week who is uh, getting ready to move out of our community and we were talking about Durant. And um, in this conversation there came up, and I'm not passing judgment on uh, uh, the community because I love this community more than any community I've ever lived in, but it just kind of flowed into the conversation what people have said about this community often, that it is closed and cliquish. That strangers don't seem to be embraced right away. I haven't found that to be true, but that's some perspective. It could be the perspective that some people have concerning the church. I mean, do, when strangers come in, they're new people, Durant, do they feel that embracing of the Christian fellowship immediately? I mean, here in Durant, First Baptist Church, America, they, they really feel that. How many times have you put an extra plate at your table when you left on Sunday morning thinking, I'm going to find me a stranger this morning at church, invite them home for lunch? Now the amazing thing here is that he says when you do that, you may be entertaining what he calls angels that you don't know, unaware. Now it doesn't mean that there's some angel, you know, in disguise as a human being. It doesn't mean that at all. The word is wengelios, it means one sent from God. Now watch this carefully. He's saying that when you show hospitality and affection and love, Christian love toward a stranger, that stranger may have in your giving it and in their receiving it. Maybe we should hand out these, we should put those, you know, for strangers to put on their lapel at read, be friendly. Where does this all come from? I want you to look with me to the 25th chapter of the book of Matthew. The 25th chapter of Matthew, I'll begin reading at verse 32. Keep you in Hebrews in just a moment. Look at verse 32 of chapter 25 and we'll read. We'll separate them one from another as the, sheep, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then the king will say to those on his right, for the foundation of the world, for I was hungry and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger. You, you reached out and you embraced me. You didn't say, you, you included me. You didn't reject me, see. Sick and you visited me. In prison and you came to me. 
saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you thirsty, gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? That's, where he, that's what he's talking about. Now, I know, I know the rest that are involved in that. I know that there's a chance you're going to get ripped off by some stranger if you do that. I know never give money to folks who come knocking on your door. I know don't pick up a hitchhiker. I know that. I know all the risks are involved. I had an aunt and uncle one time. I saw this guy, just a young man, just poor and outcast and had no home. They took him in, gave him home that he never had, love that he'd never experienced. Stayed about six months, took all their jewelry, money, silverware, and split. Ripped off. I know that. What I am wondering, though, is where is the flip side of the record? Is that when are God's people going to begin to reach out and embrace the stranger? I'm wondering about that that new kid that's going to sit across the aisle from you at school. It's the most traumatic uh, event in some kid's life, moved to a brand new school when school opened. I wonder what that kid's going to be like. What about that person that's moved in down on the corner? There's a car, there's a moving van moving some folks in our neighborhood this week. Third specific. Now here's where it gets kind of complicated. Remember prisoners. Now in this day, of course, half of the folks he knew, half of the Christians were in and out of prison, abused and misused, mistreated. He said, remember those because they're part of your body. He's talking about the body of the church. Let me read you something. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need, for, need of you. That there be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. I'm ashamed at the fact that there are people who sit down here in the Bryan County Jail and rot that I never go see. Do you? I came in here one Sunday morning after we'd had an associational meeting and there was a letter lying right there on that pew. Now, I don't normally read folks' mail, but I couldn't resist because the return address was Bryan County Jail. It was a letter of a, for a, from a young man to his mother. Now, I'm not going to read the whole letter. I just want to read this part. He said, I started to quit writing, but I have to go on and tell you some things wonderful. Let me explain last week. On Sunday, you know who, who wouldn't let the pastors from the church in Durant come in to witness to all of us? But today, you know who did. And it was beautiful. The way everybody responded to the Word of God. 
Nearly all but two kneeled, he said, K-N-E-L-L-E-D, kneeled in prayer with the pastors. You could really feel the Spirit flowing. Everyone was so happy. I cried tears of joy. At first I started to not even go out, but I had the feeling something was going to happen, and it did. Praise the Lord. All of us prayed the sinner's prayer. Since I can't get out to go to church, God came to me. What are you doing about prisoners? And you say, oh, that's written 2,000 years ago. Sure it was. Let's just tear that page out of the Bible because it's no longer relevant to us and throw it out. No, no, no. Now, don't you wait for the church to start some kind of a program, you know, for prison ministry. Don't wait for that. But what are you, how, how many times have you visited prison? When I sit in my Sunday school class not long ago, somebody raised this question. We were studying about Paul's missionary journeys. And one of the guys in the class, he said, Brother Tibble, he said, of all of the people that Paul loved and ministered to and won, how many stood with him all the way to the end? And we got to talking about that in my Sunday school class. Not many. You turn to the last part of the last book to Timothy, he said, nobody stood with me. But as I got to looking at that during the next week, I found that there were two people that were very special to the Apostle Paul, a man named Epaphroditus and a man named Onesiphorus. And these two men were special to Paul because they ministered to him as a prisoner. And he called Epaphroditus my minister in every need, and he called Onesiphorus the man not ashamed of my chains. And, 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 and somehow in the, in the profile of that man's life, there were two people who ministered to him as a prisoner. When I was at North Fort Worth Baptist Church, I instituted or inaugurated, began a ministry to prisoners. What we did was once a month we took a bus down to the church and met families who had children, who had relatives in Eastham Unit. It's the violent, it's the unit for the violent criminals in the prison system in Texas. And she'd never visited him one time. No way to go. And she was so happy She's on that bus to go to Eastern Unit. We'd go down to Eastern Unit. I didn't get to see any of them. They wouldn't let me in. I just sat out on a bus. And these families went in and saw their families and came back out. Don't wait for the church to start something like that. Chuck Colson is my hero. I've read everything he's written. I've read it twice, as a matter of fact. My favorite book is his book, Loving God. Chuck Colson is the, is the Watergate... Uh, person who, was, who spent years in the penitentiary and, and now has instituted prison fellowship and he's developed this fellowship of ministry to prisons not only in America but around the world and here and to read these, this stuff he's got about prisoners. Four out of every five return to prison. 
And the thing that throbs in his book is that we have all of these wonderful platitudes about ministering in the Christian faith and these guys sit in jail for life and a, and a Christian never comes one time. How do we justify that? He even told about a pastor who got real, you know, real religious and wrote a prisoner, pen pal, wrote this prisoner every week and just wonderful things he had to say to him. The prisoner got out, went straight to his new friend, the preacher, and walked in and the preacher was, you know, just aghast. And, and, and finally the conversation wound up like this. Well, I hope to see you again sometime. And the prisoner told Chuck Colson, it was then that I realized it was fine to write me. He didn't want me in his church. Oh yeah, that's, that's 2,000 years ago. This is applicable to then. Don't hide behind that. I'm ashamed that I've done so little for these poor folk. These people who are lost in the prisons, jails, America. Well, there are three questions for my way of application I want to ask. First question, why do I wait for someone else to start something? It's a matter of procrastination. Why do I wait for somebody to, to do it first? Second question, why do I wonder about how to go about it? It's the question of uncertainty. Why do I wonder how you go about doing something like this? Third question, why do I worry about risks? It's a question of fear. Foy Valentine has a book called, What Do I Do After I Say Amen? What he means is, I go to church every Sunday. What's supposed to happen after we say amen, leave? I'll tell you, that book will tromp all over your heart. It's what he said. An, un, an uninvolvement in this age is not a live option to the people of God. Our society is sick. Our world needs changing. And we are to be the world changers. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that somehow, someday, somewhere, sometime, that each of us, pastor and people, will quit talking about the Christian life begin to live it, to love one another with a deep affection, to reach out and embrace the stranger, the different, to show hospitality, to include, to receive, and to feel in our own heart the hurt, the suffering of the, those who are captive all in all kinds of captivity. The bondage of vicious habits, 
the trap of an adulterous relationship, the bondage of drugs, the enslavement of materialism. God, help us to believe and know that we have the truth. The truth makes men free. I pray you'll bless this congregation, people, who sincerely, I think, Father, desire to live for you. Help us to be different after we say amen. To do when we leave what we felt impressed while we're here. Because I pray in the name of Jesus who came to bind up the brokenhearted, to release the captive and set at liberty those who are in bondage, and to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is my prayer in Jesus' name for His sake. Now I want to give an invitation tonight. This invitation is something like this. An invitation for you to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. An invitation for church membership. An invitation to a commitment that goes deeper than verbalizing religious platitudes. A willingness as kids, young people, and adults to reach out and include the unlovely. Embrace them in your fellowship and care. And to build a, an atmosphere and a relationship of abiding love and respect for one another as Christian people in the church. This is my invitation. If you'd join that, make that commitment, or join, want to join our church, or make your profession of faith, we'll invite you to come. We'll just sing a stanza or two, so if you're coming, you'll need to come.